And now, of course, we come to that time where we come to the preaching of God's Word. And so if you would, open your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to review a little bit of the context leading up to verse 15. But for the sake of our reading at this point, let's just begin reading in verse 15. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and Truth, for such the Father, or such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am Well, as you can see, we come to a portion of Scripture that deals with the nature of true worship. In fact, the statement in verse 24 provides what is likely the most definitive statement about worship in the New Testament, maybe even the most definitive statement about worship in all of Scripture. A statement that no doubt many of us are very, very familiar with, and yet how often have we considered this statement in the context of John's Gospel? Both its more immediate context in the flow of this encounter with the Samaritan woman, but, but also even the, the broader context of what we've been seeing in John's gospel to this point. I can almost speak for myself in that oftentimes when I've referred to this verse or even studied this verse, it was in a topical fashion where I was either isolating the statement about God, that God is spirit, or was isolating the statement about worship, that it must be in spirit and in truth, but, but really divorced from the broader context of what's been, what's been happening in John's gospel. You see, we typically consider the statement that Jesus makes here as being disconnected from the, the first half of the encounter, where Jesus declares that he is the source of living water. And even disconnected from what we've seen in chapter 3, where Jesus speaks of the necessity of the new birth. And really, in doing so, we fail to miss the richness of this statement and its relationship to the Spirit, regeneration, and eternal life. 
You see, we have to understand that the Apostle John, as he puts together his gospel, yes, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he is putting together historical accounts that serve a particular purpose. And, and he, he points out at the end of this gospel that he, he could have chosen essentially anything, that the, the, the books in the libraries of the world would not be large enough to contain all that could have been written concerning Jesus, but he has selected the things that he has with intentionality and purpose to be instructive. And so these aren't a series of historical accounts that are unrelated. They're interrelated. They build upon each other. John is teaching us. He's instructing us. And here he's teaching us about the nature of true worship and its relationship to the new birth, regeneration, eternal life. And so we're going to do just that as we work through this passage. We're going to seek to understand What's being said here, what Jesus is saying about the nature of true worship and and to understand it in its fullness, we have to understand it in the fuller context of John's gospel. But let me refresh your memory on what we've seen so far. Jesus had been conducting his ministry first in Jerusalem, but then later in the countryside of Judea. And his popularity was on the rise, and it's not difficult to see why. I mean, first of all, he had the forerunner John the Baptist who came preaching that his coming was near, that, that he would come. The Messiah was, was, was on the cusp of entering history. And John the Baptist had an amazing ministry, a very successful and prolific preaching ministry, one that garnered lots of attention, lots of popularity. And of course, again, he was pointing forward to the arrival of Christ, and now Christ had arrived. And upon his arrival, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and begins to perform many signs and wonders at the, the Passover feast. And many were, for all the wrong reasons at that time, beginning to believe in him, believing in him as a, as a teacher from God with insufficient faith, faith that, that, that warranted him not entrusting himself to them. And beyond that, just even adding all the more to his popularity, his teaching was out of this world. He taught with authority, as we know from Matthew chapter 7. He, he didn't teach like the Pharisees and the scribes. He taught with authority. He spoke as one who was from above. And word was spreading. Word was spreading that he was making more disciples than John, even baptizing more disciples than John, with, which meant what? I mean, if, if John had come in conflict with the Pharisees, what was going to happen with Jesus and his ministry? There was going to be confrontation. And Jesus knew there would be confrontation. He knew that he and the Pharisees were going to go toe-to-toe, but it was too soon for that. It was too early. The hour of his time had not arrived as yet. And so he initially withdrew into the countryside of Judea and then left the countryside and sought to return again to Galilee. And to do that, he had to travel north, because Judea is, is in the south and Galilee is in the north and sandwiched between the two is Samaria. 
And so he had to go north, and, and, and because the, the shortest route was through Samaria, there's a sense in which geographical necessity must have required that he go through Samaria to get to Galilee. But even beyond that, we know that he's been engaged in this encounter and that this was really a divine appointment, one that no doubt the Father had directed to him and for him, that he was to, to meet this Samaritan woman at the well and engage in a conversation with her as the Father sought her to be a worshiper of him. And so there may have been some geographical necessity that had resulted in Jesus passing through Samaria, but even more than that, there was divine necessity as as this woman was graciously given a God-ordained divine appointment with the Son of God. And Jesus being true man, true God, yes, but also true man, is wearied from his journey. He's thirsty. And in his weariness, he he sits down by the well, by Jacob's well. And the Samaritan woman comes. Curiously, she came at the heat of the day. Most women would, would choose to go at dusk or dawn to avoid the heat of the day, but she comes at the heat of the day at noon and, and curiously came alone. Most women fetched water in groups for obvious reasons, to, to protect themselves, to, to ensure they wouldn't, they wouldn't fall into any kind of tribulation on their journey. And so it's conceivable that due to her life and reputation, she sought to avoid all interaction with others, that, that she may have been a social outcast in her city, and therefore went to this particular well at this particular time to avoid any interaction with others. And Jesus, being thirsty, asked her for a drink. And instead of graciously obliging him, which would have been the hospitable thing to do, instead of of fetching him some water, drawing some water for him to drink, she chose rather to underscore the racial tension and animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. In verse 9 she says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Not really the stuff of hospitality. And so Jesus shifted the conversation in a spiritual direction and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you had known eternal life and that I am its very source, you would have asked me for that life and I would have given it to you freely. Which was really a gentle rebuke. I mean, she was essentially unwilling to give him the lesser, and he would have gladly given her the greater. But of course, Jesus was an absolute stranger. She didn't know Jesus from Adam. And here he is sitting all by himself at the, at the well and asking her for a drink and talking about living water. She no doubt thought he was a, a charlatan. What's this man doing? Sitting here by the well and asking me for water and talking about water that wells up to eternal life. And so she appears to respond with a degree of scorn and mockery and says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Who does this man think he is? In fact, that she viewed what he had said as a bold claim is expressed in verse 12 when she says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? 
who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Again, who do you think you are? To which, of course, Jesus replied in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is speaking to this woman on a completely different plane than she's picking up at this point in time. But of course, she doesn't know who Jesus is. And what happens is that as this encounter progresses and ensues, she begins to understand a little more with each step. There's a a little more with each step that she begins to to grasp about his identity, climaxing in the, the, the clearest, arguably the clearest declaration of the identity of Jesus as the Christ. There may be no other time in the New Testament in all of the gospel records that Jesus makes a more clear and explicit declaration that he is the Christ. And so we're going to capture that progression as we work through this passage. Verses 16 to 25, we're going to sort of approach it from the vantage point of the woman asking, who is this? And as the encounter progresses, who he is becomes abundantly clear. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first, he's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a miracle worker. And this comes out in verses 15 through 18, Jesus had made a bold claim. He has access to water that permanently satisfies thirst. And given the time, effort, and inconvenience of fetching water, the Samaritan woman's interest is peak. So verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now maybe this is sarcasm. Maybe she's not in any way, shape, or form entertaining the possibility that Jesus can provide water that supernaturally quenches thirst permanently and would end her need to ever come to the well again. But I tend to think she's open to it. She's open to the possibility that Jesus is a miracle worker and that Jesus can provide water that will quench her thirst permanently. And that would have been a big deal. I mean... There weren't taps in the kitchen that you could just turn on when you were thirsty. There was a a regular and even daily trip that would have to take place as as individuals, typically women, would go to the well to, to draw water for the daily needs of their day. It was hot. They would have to carry an empty pot all the way there. They'd fill it, have to carry it all the way back. It was inconvenient, it required effort, it required time. It was a taxing part of life in the ancient world. And so if Jesus could provide water that would bypass all of that, she was in. Can you blame her? No. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about that kind of water. He was speaking to her on a spiritual level. level. He was was using thirst to expose a much deeper need, and she wasn't grasping that yet, so he, he changes the, the, the direction of the conversation and says in verse 16, go, call your husband, and come here. 
And that would have altered the entire tenor of this discussion. Jesus has likely just asked a question that touches this woman in the place that exposes her greatest need. A question that not only reminds her that she's living with a man unlawfully, but also reminds her of what were likely past failed marriages. In that moment, as as Jesus said, go and get your husband, there may have been immediate conviction, a reminder of of shame and and guilt and, and anguish, grief. Think of the relationships that would have would have represented all kinds of tribulation in her life until that time. And the fact that she was in a relationship now that was unlawful implies that the, the, the first five marriages may not have ended on proper grounds. It's, it's possible they weren't legitimate divorces or, or even the, the result of death. And just consider if she's at that well at that time because she's trying to avoid all of the people she's going to see along the way, then she's that much more reminded of all of these things. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And it's tough to know how she said this. It might have been defensive and dismissive, I have no husband. Or maybe it just stopped her dead in her tracks, and now she's going like, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. I mean, her life is just exposed in a moment. How does he know that? And why did Jesus go here? You know, often the typical answer is, well, he's modeling for us effective evangelism. There needs to be conviction over sin. The the law needs to be brought to the sinner to convict them of their sin. And so Jesus is just modeling evangelism for us. He's showing us the, the need to use the law to convict the sinner of their sin so he can prepare her for the gospel. And there's a sense in which you can make that application. That's a fair application, but there's more going on here. I think that misses the fullness of what's happening. Jesus went here for two reasons. First, to get her attention. He wants her to think more deeply about who he is. And at this point in time, she's not getting it. And so to show her that she needs to think more deeply about his identity, he expresses knowledge to her that would prove that he has access to supernatural knowledge. She's thinking he's at best a miracle worker, at worst a charlatan, and he's, he's, he's expressing that he has knowledge that he shouldn't have under normal human ordinary means. This is no ordinary man that she's speaking with. And then second, to get her thinking about the nature of the gift being offered to her. Until now, She's been thinking entirely in physical terms about physical thirst. But Jesus has something entirely different in mind, a thirst physical water can't quench. And so he doesn't just expose her sin, he exposes everything. 
Because in addition to whatever sin was bound up in the, the previous five marriages, there was no doubt an immense amount of pain, grief, shame, and anguish. She had been looking for something, but she had been looking in all of the wrong places. And now she's either cohabitating with a man who isn't her husband, which is fornication, or she's committing adultery. She has a deeper thirst, and she has attempted to quench that thirst, but every attempt has failed. And so, yes, does Jesus expose her sin? Surely he does. But he, appeal, he appeals to her thirst, a deep thirst for something more. And he offers himself as the only one that can satisfy that need. Well, if he didn't have her attention, he definitely does now. She's been wondering who he is, and the question is, who is he? Well, he's not just a miracle worker. Second, if you're taking notes, jot this down, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a prophet. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. A statement, but an implied question. And some believe this is a strategic effort to change the subject, that she has no interest in discussing her past or her present, that she is just trying to change the subject and is shifting it into a theological debate, which is oftentimes what people do is as a smoke screen for protecting themselves and their life, they'll just shift the conversation to a, a theological discussion outside of them. But I think that misses it. There's got to be a relationship between the, the encounter to this point and, and where she goes in this discussion, a, a relationship between Jesus offering this living water that wells up to eternal life and the, the issue of worship and, and proper worship. The racial tension between Jews and Samaritans has already been raised. And the matter that she raises here is the age-old debate, where is the proper place of worship? I mean, if Jesus provides living water that satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart, maybe he can settle the matter. Maybe this is a test of his religious knowledge and wisdom a test of whether or not he is truly a prophet. And this is where the historical situation between Jews and Samaritans comes into view. Which site is the proper place for worship? The Jews worshipped where? In Jerusalem. And the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. So why did the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim? Well, first, because they rejected much of the Old Testament. All they embraced was the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they had limited revelation. Second, because Shechem, note this, was the first place that Abraham worshipped Yahweh, Genesis 12, 6 and 7. Abraham is the, the father of Israel. And the place that he first worships God is at Shechem. And Mount Gerizim is one of two mountains that, that basically oversee Shechem, that overshadow it. 
And so why they choose Mount Gerizim over Mount Ebal? Because third, Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing and the blessings and the curses of the Old Testament. You see this in Deuteronomy 27. There were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience that was bound up in the Old Covenant. So Moses had six tribes go up on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, and six tribes go up on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, and they proclaim the blessings and the curses of the covenant to each other. And since Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing, from which the blessings were proclaimed, the Samaritans viewed it as the rightful place of worship. And so who was right? Well, the Jews were obviously. Jerusalem was the God-ordained place of worship. Listen to 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles rather, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Since the day, God is speaking here, Since the day that I brought my people from the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man from a, for a leader over my people. But I have chosen, here it is, Jerusalem, that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Not Shechem, but Jerusalem. And that's crystal clear throughout the Old Testament, in particular the Psalms, but the Samaritans didn't see the Psalms as authoritative. And so when the Samaritan woman says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, she likely means Abraham, if not Isaac and Jacob. She's appealing to the patriarchs. And she wants to know who's right. And there are three parts to Jesus' answer. Obviously, the woman doesn't actually ask a question, but her statement is an implied question. And Jesus recognizes this, and so he has a a three-part response to her. And we're going to work through it. First of all, it's going to demonstrate that geographical locations become obsolete in the new order of things. Second, that salvation is from the Jews. And third, he's going to point out the nature of true worship. And so look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. This is like a truly, truly statement. Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's the hour? You should know this by now. The hour is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the new covenant. A change was on the horizon where worship wouldn't take place in either location. Which is to say that the age-old debate would soon be irrelevant. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. Well, that would put an end to that. And though not stated here, we know as John is building the case that he's building about Jesus as the Christ, that Christ himself would become the new center of worship and would serve as a substitute for the Jerusalem temple. And to remind you of that, turn back to chapter 2 for a moment. In an early sort of confrontation with the Religious leaders of Israel, 
verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would become the the one through whom worship came to the Father. Worship would be offered to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And so the age-old debate would soon be irrelevant. Specific sites of worship were on the cusp of obsolescence. Verse 22 You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And it's important to note here that the you is plural. It refers to the Samaritans. The Samaritan woman is representative of the corporate whole. And Jesus is saying that you worship what you do not know, which means Samaritan worship is ignorant. Ignorant worship. They worshiped what they did not know, and they did not know because they were outside the stream of God's revelation. Their rejection of everything but the Pentateuch put them at a severe disadvantage. They were were ill-informed about worship. In contrast, the Jews worship what they know. And so even though Jesus could come to them and ultimately condemn their worship as nothing more than dead orthodoxy, because they had the revelation of God, because they were the ones who had been entrusted with the oracles of God, because they had the covenants and the the temple service and the law, they did not worship in ignorance. They, They worshiped what they knew from the revelation of God. Why? For salvation is from the Jews. Which is to say that the Jews are God's chosen instrument through which God mediates redemption. His entire plan of redemption that would not just have implications for Israel, but would have implications for the nations was mediated through the Jews. which just amplifies the irony all the more that they, in large part, rejected their Messiah and reject him to this day. So not only was an hour coming, as Jesus answers this this woman's implied question, not only was an hour coming when geographical locations would be obsolete, But salvation is from the Jews, and therefore Samaritan worship is ill-informed. They are outside the stream of God's revelation, and they worship what they did not know. And then Jesus gets into the nature of true worship. Verse 23, but an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
What an amazing statement. An hour is coming and now is. In one sense, the hour was yet future because the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ was yet future. The establishment and inauguration of the new covenant was future. And yet at the same time, because Jesus was already present and was already ushering in the essence of true worship, there's a sense in which the hour had already come. The new had already begun to break in on the old. And so Jesus indicates true worship is directed to the Father in spirit and truth. Such that true worship no longer hinges on particular geographical locations, but instead hinges on the person of God's beloved Son. The fountain of living water. say, well, how does, how does worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth relate to worship that is offered to the Father through the Son? What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Does it mean in sincerity and truth, where, for example, the Jews represent truth without sincerity and the Samaritans represent sincerity without truth, whereas you need both sincerity and truth? Well, it certainly doesn't mean anything less than that, but it means certainly more than that. Does it mean that true worship takes place in the inner man and truth? where all the external forms of religion just are put aside and become obsolete, well, again, it certainly can't mean anything less than that, but it means absolutely more than that. So what does it mean? Well, the answer comes in verse 24. Look at that statement. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, this is so easy to miss. We often either focus on the fact that God is spirit, which is a statement about his essence and nature, or we focus on the in truth or in spirit and truth, but we never understand or, or wrestle with the, the relationship between the two. The, the statement that God is spirit is a statement about his nature. God is infinite, invisible, eternal, and the giver of life. Jesus made a statement about flesh back in John 3, for example. John 3 and verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, finite, limited, God is spirit, not flesh. He is infinite, invisible, eternal, the giver of all life, and is entirely sufficient within himself. He is dependent on nothing. And that he is spirit also means that he is unknowable apart from him revealing himself to us. We, we can't know him apart from his self-revelation. And it's because God is spirit that worship must be in spirit and truth. Look at that statement again. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
God's nature dictates that worship must take place in spirit and in truth for it to be true worship. Because God is spirit, he must be worshiped in this way, in spirit and truth. You say, well, how does one do that? If we're of flesh and finite, not of spirit, how do we worship a God who is spirit? Well, to borrow the language of the Apostle Paul, we must be made partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 We need to have participation in God. You say, well, how does one become a partaker of the divine nature? New birth. Regeneration. You must be born from above to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Because God is spirit, we need the spirit of God to give us new birth that he would come into us and we would have the very life of God, eternal life, pumping through our spiritual veins, as it were, to be able to worship God as he is. That statement that, that worship must be in spirit and in truth is a statement about the spirit of truth and the need to be born from above to truly worship God. This is not a, a statement here in verse 24 that is sort of determining a category within the category as though there are believers and then within the, the category of true believers you have a certain select group of worshipers who are true worshipers. No, the, the point is this, the true worshiper is the believer. Every believer who has the Spirit of God, every believer born from above is a true worshiper of God and can worship the Father in spirit and truth. In fact, just look at Philippians 3.3 for a moment. Because there Paul has a statement that helps to sort of bring this out a little bit. And it's nice to be able to see what Jesus is saying here in, in John chapter 4, dovetail with the, the doctrine laid out for us in the epistles. And in Philippians 3.3, Paul is contrasting the, the worship of the people of God, the worship of those who have been born from above, who have faith in Christ, with the, the worship of the, the false circumcision, those who are Jews and are trusting in the flesh for, for right standing before God. And in Philippians 3.3 it says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's those who are of it's those who are of the flesh that put confidence in the flesh, but those who are born of the Spirit put confidence in the Spirit. And so to worship in spirit and truth, one must have the Spirit of truth. Jesus will refer to the Helper, the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of truth, 
on multiple occasions, but in John 16, 13, there's a helpful statement there which says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. True worshipers are those who have been born of the Spirit and have eternal life. And the provision of both new birth and eternal life are inseparably connected to what? The hour, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. even as the Son explains the Father to us. There's only two categories, true worshipers and false worshipers, the saved and the unsaved, the regenerate and the unregenerate. That's it. And of course, worship is not just what happens when we sing. What's happening right now is worship. You are, you are meditating on the Word of God. You are, you are thinking on the, the Word of God and considering what it means to worship God in light of the fact that He is Spirit and in light of the fact that He's revealed Himself in His Son through His death and resurrection and that new birth and regeneration are necessary to worship God. That's worship. You are worshiping in your mind right now. And so by demonstrating his supernatural knowledge, he grabs the attention of this woman. And she's begun to consider the possibility that he's a prophet. And so she speaks to him about the very thing that divides the Jews and the Samaritans. Where is the proper site for worship? And Jesus addresses her implied question, pointing out, Three realities. One, that geographical locations are going to be obsolete. Two, that salvation is from the Jews. It's through the Jews that salvation would ultimately be mediated to the world. And three, that a time was coming and now is when true worshipers would worship in spirit and in truth, making the new birth and eternal life a prerequisite for true worship. And you have to be able to see that in the context of John's gospel. Chapter 3 is new birth. All the way along, we've been looking at eternal life. You have the living water Jesus is offering to this woman that, that, that brings forth life, everlasting life. To disconnect the statement here about true worship from all of that is foolish. Well, as helpful as that is, the woman is looking for someone with a little more authority. She's considered the possibility that he is a prophet, but she would like to talk to someone who is classified as the prophet. One like Moses described in Deuteronomy 18. And so she's wondering who this man is. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a prophet. But third, if you're taking notes, 
He's the Christ. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. The Samaritans had a, a hope and expectation for the Jews, messianic anticipation. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. There's no he there. I who speak to you am. A clear declaration that Jesus is the Christ. There's another place in John's gospel where he makes this kind of a declaration, but it's still not even as straightforward and explicit. Look at John 9 for a moment, verse 35. This is with the blind man. In John 9, 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. That is certainly a declaration that he is the Christ. But to the woman, he says, I who speak to you am. She is talking to the Messiah at the well of Jacob just on a random day from the human perspective as she went to get a pot of water she ends up in a conversation with the son of God the Messiah and he has revealed himself to her you say well what happens next Well, the disciples return. Verse 28, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Verse 39, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. You know what she's a picture of? She's a picture of the Father seeking true worshipers. She wasn't looking for God, Christ. Her life was a mess. Five potentially failed marriages, presently involved in a sinful relationship, religiously ignorant, totally uninfluential, although the Lord used her, obviously, as we just read. And yet the Father pursues her, granting her a divine encounter with his Son, the Christ, where the Father actually reveals himself to her through his Son. Just listen for a moment to Matthew 11. Verse 25 and following, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Father reveals himself to this woman through the Son. The Son reveals the Father to her. And she partakes of water that is living water that springs up and flows unto eternal life. Her thirst is quenched. She will never thirst again. She has been reconciled to her God, born from above, and is now able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Have you partaken of this living water? Do you thirst for a thirst that can't be quenched by water? Are you in the pursuit of trying to satisfy a a hole in your heart that the world and all that it has to offer cannot fill, no matter how hard you try? Has that pursuit plunged you further and further and further into the depravity of sin, where the the destructive nature of sin is just so evident in your life as there's a wake of destruction in your path? Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come and drink by water without cost. Drink of me deeply. Believe on me. I've laid down my life upon the cross. I laid down my life for the forgiveness of sin. I've made atonement for sin. I've, I've made the way to the Father wide open. I have sent the Spirit to open the eyes of the blind, to give them sight, that they may drink and believe. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. And you will drink living water, never to thirst again. Water that he says springs up from within to eternal life. And if you have experience that living water, if you've been born from above, if you've experienced the, the, the well of water within that springs up to eternal life, then all that's left to do is to come, praise, and glorify. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for just the blessing of being able to work through your your word verse by verse and to come to such familiar portions of scripture but to see them in greater fullness and richness. Yes, Father, you want our worship to be sincere and yes, you want our worship to be in accord with the truth as you've revealed yourself. But none of that is even possible apart from the new birth. And so, Father, we thank you for 
regeneration. We thank you for birth from above, the indwelling spirit that we've been sealed for the day of redemption, that we have Christ dwelling in us through the spirit and even you in us through the spirit, that we've been joined to Christ and have union with him and can therefore worship you in spirit and truth. We give you praise, and we give you glory in your Son's name. Amen.